Well, some years ago, I took a missions trip to Columbia, South America. I was traveling with Paul Borthwick, a Grace Chapel friend and former missions pastor here at Grace. At the time, Colombia was the kidnapping capital of the world due to a running battle between the, the government and the drug lords and some paramilitary forces. It wasn't until we were sitting in the airport lounge that Paul handed me the U.S. State Department report on travel to Colombia, strongly advising Americans to avoid any unnecessary travel to that part of the world. So was this necessary travel? Visiting a partner and speaking to pastors in an out-of-the-way place called Cincelejo, Colombia? It certainly felt like important travel. In any event, it was too late because they were boarding our plane at the time, so it was time to go. Now, the town of Cincelejo, when we arrived, seemed friendly enough, but the first thing we did was to check in at the local police station so they could keep their eye on us that week. Now, as far as I could tell, we were the only gringos in town, so it was going to be pretty easy to pick us out of the crowd. But they told us not to travel alone and to eat all our meals right there in the little hotel that we were staying in. So we spent several days uh, meeting with pastors and church planters from all across the region. In one of our meetings, Paul asked a crowd of a couple of hundred uh, pastors and, and spouses uh, how many of them had lost members of their family or congregation due to the violence, and almost every hand in the room went up. And one young couple described hiding under their beds as bullets tore through their little house one night. We made it through the week without incident and found the people and the town of Cincelejo quite welcoming. But on the morning we were scheduled to leave, very early in the morning, the phone rang in my hotel room. I picked it up to hear someone speaking very animatedly in Spanish on the other end of the phone. Now, they were talking way too fast for my high school Spanish to keep up with, so they abruptly hung up the phone. And then that middle-of-the-night fear kicked in. What if it was kidnappers checking to see if I was in my room? What if they're on their way to get me right now? I quickly went to the narrow little window in the room and looked down to the street below, which was two or three stories, and I, I figured I could probably survive a jump to the street below, and I began to plot my escape route through the alleys in case they should come for me. I double-bolted the door and laid awake till morning. Well, obviously nothing happened. So a few hours later, I found myself at breakfast with Paul and our hosts, and I sheepishly described what had happened, feeling especially embarrassed knowing that Paul was a very seasoned and savvy world traveler. They got a really good laugh out of it, especially when it turned out that the call was from our driver who was confirming the pickup that morning. <laughs> Paul got the same call. I said to him, so I'm guessing you didn't go check the window for an escape route. Nah, he said. I shoved the dresser in front of the door and laid awake till morning. <laughs> so there. True story, you can ask him. Well, our theme for this year's Global Awareness Week is safety and security. That trip to Colombia is about as close as I've come to being in danger, as far as I can tell, in ministry or on mission, and is a pretty feeble threat compared to the real risks and threats that many of our partners face on a regular basis, serving both around the city and around the world. So Jim Tebby got us started last week as he spoke about the very real threats that they face at Foreman Christian College in Pakistan. He took us to Psalm 121 and reminded us that in the face of danger, our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
And all week long, we've been hearing from our partners at a variety of gatherings about the, the threats and challenges they face in the many places that they serve. Now, most of us will not find ourselves in places like uh, Cincelejo or, or Pakistan or maybe even not even in the rougher neighborhoods of greater Boston. But as we've been learning this fall, we are all called to go to go out to our schools and our neighborhoods and our workplaces, to the everyday places of our lives, but to go to share the love and truth of Christ with people. And as we go out into that world, it's a world that feels increasingly unsafe and even unfriendly to the gospel of Christ. Events of this past week have certainly brought that insecurity home. Now, the shooting in Sutherland Springs, Texas, as far as we can tell, was not religiously motivated. But if you can't feel safe in church on Sunday morning, where can you feel safe in this world? And what can we count on from God when it comes to help in the face of trouble and danger? So with those questions in mind, let's return to the Gospels, where we've been spending a lot of time this fall. We've been talking about the divine invitation to join God in his saving, healing, restoring work in the world. And as we take a look today, let's be asking these two questions. What can we expect from God? And what does God expect from us when it comes to safety and security as we go out into the world? So we're going to go to Gospel of Mark chapter 8, and uh, we'll begin with, uh, with verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three day, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we were in the Gospel, so let me try to remind you and catch you up to what's happening. For many months now, Jesus has been teaching and training the Twelve for a life of mission. In fact, he even sent them out on a short-term mission trip, and they came back and debriefed with them. But now it's time to call the question, are you guys with me or not? And so Jesus poses that question, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Way to go. It was a great moment. High fives all around, maybe some chest bumps on the part of the disciples. They had gotten it right. But their excitement quickly faded with the next words that Jesus spoke because they were words of suffering and rejection and death. Now, this is not what they had signed up for. They hadn't left their homes, their nets, their business, their families. They hadn't left all that to follow a loser. This is not what they had in mind for their master and certainly not for themselves. And so Peter, feeling pretty full of himself at this moment, actually tries to set his master straight. Now Jesus will have none of it. Verse 33, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now notice, Jesus isn't just rebuking Peter here, he's rebuking Satan because embedded in Peter's protest is a temptation from the enemy for Jesus to give up this dangerous course that he's on, which is going to lead him to the cross. It was a suicide mission. 
They was neither safe nor secure. From an earthly perspective, it made no sense at all. But Jesus isn't thinking from an earthly perspective, is he? He's thinking from a kingdom perspective with a mission mindset. And so he decides right now he better set his lads straight. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Now notice here, Jesus very intentionally includes the crowd. So these words weren't just for the twelve. They were for everyone who wants to follow Jesus. These words aren't meant for an elite team of spiritual superstars, for people we call missionaries or partners. These are words for all of us, every one of us, who want to follow Jesus. That's a pretty strange recruiting pitch, isn't it? Remember, this is part of the divine invitation. God is inviting us to join him in his saving, healing, restoring work in the world. Is this what we have to look forward to? Suffering, rejection, and death? What kind of a deal is that? Now, most of us are probably familiar with Sir Ernest Shackleton's trip to his expedition to explore Antarctica, to cross the entire continent by way of the South Pole. And maybe you're familiar with his somewhat famous recruiting ad that was placed in local London newspapers. Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, Long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, <laughs> honor and recognition in case of success. Now, who's going to sign up for a trip like that? But as the story goes, he had hundreds and even thousands of applicants. Now, for those of you who are fact-checking me, no one has actually been able to lay their hands on this particular advertisement. So we don't know for certain that it's true. But it's been told many, many times and makes for a killer sermon illustration <laughs> of the kind of call that Jesus is issuing to his followers. This is a difficult, dangerous invitation. I looked up the two key words of our global awareness theme. Safety, the condition of being protected from danger, risk, or injury. And security, the state of being free from danger or threat. Neither one sounds like what Jesus is talking about. And neither one sounds like the kind of circumstances, the kind of situations that many of our partners have described for us as we have visited with them this week. At several occasions, we have invited our partners to share with us some of the challenges and even threats they face as they carry out their work in the world. Our partners from Nepal told us that the government has just passed an anti-conversion law, putting in jeopardy anyone who shares the gospel and anyone who accepts the gospel. Pastor Vitali described a, a trip he took by car over the mountains into a closed country, one of the stands, and how they were stopped in the middle of the night in a remote mountain pass by a group of Taliban fighters, how their jeep was full of Christian literature. The fighters made them get out of the car and put their hands behind their backs. He thought he was going to die right there. 
Pastor Claire described some of the gang-controlled neighborhoods that she and her team work in on a regular basis. Our partners in Egypt are regularly sending mission teams, teams of lay leaders, to parts of the Middle East where ISIS is still present and active. Liz described uh, getting a car for herself so she could finally get free of the compound, that, the mission compound where she teaches, the university campus, so she could get out and do some shopping and enjoy some recreation, only to be told that as a, as a young white woman, she really should never leave the compound, even to go to the grocery store. None of these sound like the state of being free from danger or threat. Sounds just the opposite. And while most of us will not face these kinds of threats, we face certain risks as we attempt to live out our faith in our schools, our workplaces, and neighborhoods. I mean, we risk losing friendships over spiritual religious disagreements. We risk conflict and estrangement from family members. We might risk our popularity or our social standing because of our beliefs or the ways that we live. We might risk being passed over for a promotion. We might risk being fired for crossing some kind of a boundary. And we might be called to, 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 to get involved with some troubled people or some unstable neighborhoods in our country, in our city, or around the world. Jesus really hasn't promised protection from, from danger or risk or threat. Look again at Psalm 121, verse 1, our theme verse. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now think about it for a minute. When do you need help? When you're in trouble, right? When you're in danger. You don't need help when your boat is gliding across the water. You need help when your boat is sinking. And so while Psalm 121 promises has us help, it also promises us danger and trouble. So let's ask again, before this week ends, before we say yes to this divine invitation, what can we expect from God and what does he expect from us as we go out into an unsafe and unfriendly world? Well, Jesus answers those questions in these next couple of verses. Let's first consider what God expects from us. The first thing he expects from us is that we will deny ourselves. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Now, when we hear that expression, deny ourselves, we, we probably think of spiritual disciplines and practices. Like, like fasting, where you deny yourself food, or silence, when you deny yourself conversation, or simplicity, when you deny yourself stuff. Now, these are all very worthwhile spiritual practices, but it's really not what Jesus has in mind here. He's talking about denying your rights and privileges. He's talking about setting aside your comfort and your preferences. He's talking about giving up your your freedom, or your privacy, or maybe even your safety. The disciplines of fasting and silence and solitude, they're just training exercises for the real sacrifices, the real denial we might have to undertake. Like the empty nesters who have 
raised their children and served the church for many years and now have every right to sit in church for an hour on Sunday and go home. But they waive that right to stay for a second hour and serve other people's children and teenagers that they might be raised in the faith as well. Those kinds of rights and sacrifices. Or like the, the well-resourced couple who could afford a beautiful home in a gated community but decide instead to move into an under-resourced neighborhood somewhere in the city. Or like the hard-working professional who gives up a, a, a well-earned vacation to go on a cross-cultural learning experience, a missions trip to some challenging part of the world. Or some bright and talented, hard-working young person who, who gives up a lucrative career in some profession and answers a call to vocational ministry or mission somewhere in the world. So Jesus expects us to deny ourselves in small and sometimes big ways. Secondly, he expects us to take up our cross. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. And what does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. When Jesus talks about taking up your cross, he's not talking about some difficult person or situation you have to live with. Your cross is not your demanding boss or your ornery neighbor or your hovering in-laws. Your boss is not your bad back or your bad temper. Your cross is not a, raising a, a difficult child or, or caring for an ailing relative. Those are all challenging situations for which we need God's help. But it's not what Jesus is talking about here. When the disciples of the crowd heard these words, take up your cross, it meant only one thing to them, be ready to die. Be ready to lay down your life. And so when Jesus talks about laying down, taking up your cross, he's talking about taking up your life, your hopes and your dreams, your career plans, your retirement plans, your home, your health, your hobbies, your happiness, all of it, any of it. Offer it up to God and his purposes. Make it available to him. Trust him to do something good with it. Perhaps to make it flourish for, for your joy, for his glory, for the good of the world. Maybe to allow it to flounder or even fail, also for his glory and, your go and the good of the world and your joy. Just taking it all up and offering it to him. I was talking this week during our visiting with some of our partners with a young man named Jason who serves with Straight Ahead Ministries uh, here in our area. And he told me how from the ages of 13 till about 21, he spent almost every year of his life in jail or prison. It was brutal. But it was there in jail that he met Christ and got his life back on track. Now you would think for a guy like that, the last thing in the world he ever wants to do is to go back inside a prison or a jail. I mean, after all, he's paid his debt to society, right? He's done, he's free, he can do what he wants with life. What he's chosen to do is to go back into those very same jails and prisons where he spent nine years of his life to meet with angry, sad, even dangerous young men and try to help them meet Christ and get their life back on track again as well. You see, he's taken that awful life experience and he's offered it up to God and his future as well to do something good with it. And so Jesus asks us to 
deny ourselves, take up our cross, and then thirdly, to follow him. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Notice, he didn't say admire me. He didn't say worship me. He didn't say learn about me. He didn't say whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and join a Bible study. Now, that's a fine thing to do, but that's not really the call. The call is to follow him. It is to go. It's to do what he did. It's to live the way he lived. It's to be kind whenever you have the opportunity. It's to pay attention to every person who crosses your path and to serve them in any way that you can. It's to forgive people even when they've wronged you in terrible ways. It's to serve people even when you're feeling like you've got nothing left to give. It's to ask questions. It's to start conversations. It's to go to parties. It's to hang out with people who are far from God. It's to do all of it in his name for his mission to save and heal and restore people and to put the world right again. And so certainly it is true. Jesus may ask us to die for him, but what he really wants us to do is to live for him, to live with him, to live like him. Even when it means setting aside our comfort, our security, our agenda, our safety, and maybe even our security. One commentator put it this way. One cannot live as a disciple the way many people watch television. Sitting in a lounge chair with a remote control in hand, ready to switch channels whenever anything unpleasant, tedious, or demanding appears on the screen. Jesus is asking us to get off the couch, to put the control in his hands, and to go out into the world and deal with whatever he and life bring our way, and to trust him to do something good with it and with us, something that will bring him glory, that will bless the world, and deep down give us joy. He's asking us to put our lives, our whole lives, every part of our lives, in his hands for his purpose. So let's put it this way. We are invited to set aside our comfort, our preferences, and even our security. It's a pretty big ask. It's a pretty strange recruiting pitch. But that's what he's asking. So what can we expect from him? I mean, why should we say yes to this invitation? What can we count on from God if we answer the call? Well, Jesus answers that in the next verse. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their life? And when Jesus says whoever loses his life will Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does he mean? Save it from what? Save it from hell? From eternal separation from God and all that is good? Yes, certainly save it from that. But he's also talking about this life as well, not just the life to come. He's talking about being saved from boredom and complacency and meaninglessness, and apathy, and cowardice, and regret, and loneliness, and smallness of life. Following Jesus saves you from all of this, and it gives you heaven as well. 
Because Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world but, but, but lose, lose your soul, lose your life? What good is it to gain a beautiful house but, but lose your beautiful family because of choices or bad compromises you've made along the way? What good does it do to gain popularity or, or a reputation in the business community but to lose your testimony as a follower of Christ because of compromises that you've made? What good does it do for your child to make the travel team or, or get into some prestigious college if along the way they lose their faith because there's no time or energy left for church or for God? What good is it? So what can we expect from God if we answer this call? Life. Life with a capital L. Life that is truly life. For some reason, the NIV translates the word Instead of using the word life, it uses the word soul there in verse 37, yet forfeit their soul, as if your soul is somehow different from your life. But it's the same word all the way through. It's life. It's who you are. It's what you do. It's why you're here. The only way for you to become the you you were meant to be, the you you want to be, is to place your life, your whole life, in God's hands, to offer it up to his purposes. Because that ultimately is where safety and security is found. In the everlasting arms of a loving, wise, faithful, and good God. The same evening we asked our partners to share their joys and challenges, we also asked them to share their joys and rewards. And one by one by one, around the room, from countries and places all over the city, they spoke about the joy they have found on mission. The joy of seeing people open their hearts and come to faith in Christ. The joy of seeing people saved from drugs and from, from prison and from abuse and from, from suicide. The joy of seeing communities transformed by better health care, by clean water, by, by better schools, by micro-enterprise. The joy of seeing pastors trained, churches planted, the Bible translated. They came alive as they described these things. Rafiq told us how people in countries all across the Middle East are becoming disillusioned with Islam because of the radical version that they're seeing. And they are opening their hearts to Christ in unbelievable numbers all across the Middle East. Samuel and Karuna described a trip they took to some remote mountain village in Nepal, two days by jeep, an impossible place to get to. But the joy of bringing, bringing health care and, and good parenting practice and the good news of Christ to that remote village, they, they lit up with joy as they described this trip. Jason, the young man I described earlier, could hardly contain the joy and privilege he feels every time he gets to walk into a prison and tell some young man about the love of Christ. Liz spoke about how God has met her and, and met her family in remarkable ways these first difficult years she has spent in South Asia. These people hadn't just found their go, they had found their life. They found fullness of joy and love and meaning and purpose and significance. In spite of how difficult, in spite of how dangerous, they feel like the most blessed, privileged, most alive people on the face of the earth. That's what we can expect from God when we say yes to this call, fullness of life and fullness of joy. 
And so we are invited to set aside our comforts, our preferences, and even our security for a greater good and a greater joy. The greater good of seeing God's work unfold in the lives of people and communities in the world around us and the joy of being part of what God is doing in this world. It's still a big ask. It's still a pretty strange recruiting pitch. As inspired as we are by Jesus' words, as inspired as we are by the partners that we're with, are we really ready to say yes to an invitation like this? I mean, are we up to this kind of call? If you're like me, you're tempted to say, I don't know if I'm, if I'm able to do that. I'm not like those partners. I, I don't have that kind of faith and courage and commitment. But let's look at the disciples just one more time here. The 12 that we've been following for these many months. Were they ready at this point to take up their cross and follow Jesus? Were they ready at this point to lay down their lives for Jesus? No, they weren't ready. You know why we know? Because they didn't. They had a chance, right? They had a chance to take up their cross and follow Jesus all the way to Golgotha. But they didn't do it, did they? They ran away. They went into hiding. It was going to take a while, and it was going to take a work of the Spirit before they were ready to lay down their lives for Jesus. What they were ready to do at this point was to take the next step, to follow Jesus to the next town. Because they could have quit at this point, right? They could have said, nah, this sounds like no fun at all. I'm going to go back, back to their fishing village, back to their tax collecting booth, back to the familiar, comfortable life in Galilee. They could have done that. But they decided to, to take the next step, to go to the next town, to handle the next encounter, to make the next discovery. And day by day, decision by decision, they found their go, they answered their call, and they changed the world. Ask any of our partners about how they find the faith and courage to do what they do. They would simply say, one day and one decision at a time. You get prepared as you go, and the Lord meets you. And that's how it will be for us as we daily accept Christ's invitation to join him, to go into the world, and to do his work in this world. So let me ask you as we finish up here, what risky, uncomfortable, difficult thing might the Lord be asking you to do these days? Where might he be asking you to invest time and energy and money and love? Who might he be asking you to reach out to with the love and truth of Christ? Whoever it is, whatever it is, wherever it is, however difficult or dangerous it is, know this, you don't have to be afraid of it. Because the only safe and secure place to be in this world is in the center of God's will for your life, of his good and loving purposes for you and for those you love and for the world around you. We are invited to set aside our comfort our preferences, and even our security for the sake of greater good and a greater joy. Let's pray about that.
Lord, we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't acknowledge that these are challenging words for us. We've heard them many times. We pray that your spirit might help us to hear them in a new and a personal way today. Thank you, Lord, that you're able to make up what is lacking in us if we will simply say yes and take the next step. So show us what that might be, Lord.